In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, what Jesus says today in Luke chapter 19, verse 41 through 48, is remarkably sobering. I've preached this text to you for six years now, and I've taught you what happens to Jerusalem in this text, and I mentioned it briefly at the beginning of the service, and I'm going to mention it briefly again later. Uh, But the chief thing I want to focus on in these words of Jesus today is when he says this. He says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And this is it. But now they are hidden from your eyes. And those are the words I want to drive home. They are hidden from your eyes. Uh, First, However, I have to teach you about the distinction that we Christians make, and it's a distinction between uh, two phrases. One is called the proper work of God, and the other is called the alien work of God. Okay, you might have heard these terms before. Uh, If you haven't, uh, it might sound really weird to you, especially the alien part, like some sort of science fiction or something. Uh, Just uh, hear me out. When we talk about the proper work of God, we're referring to the works of God that belong to his own character. So they truly and genuinely reflect who he is and what he thinks in his heart. On the other hand, when we talk about the alien work of God, we're referring to the works of God that are foreign or unfamiliar or in fact even strange to who God is. These are the works of God that are just and holy, but they don't reflect his heart as clearly as they do his proper work. So we can summarize that even further. God's proper work is when God does what he wants to do. And God's alien or strange work is when he does what he doesn't want to do. Okay. So what is the proper work of God? What are the things he wants to do? Well, the proper work of God is him blessing us, giving us gifts, being merciful to us, looking upon us with favor and smiling upon us. This is when God is most himself. Uh, Here he's doing what he's always wanted to do from before the foundation of the world is shower you with grace and mercy and joy and peace. This is the proper work of God. Now, conversely, the alien or the strange work of God is when he judges and punishes, when he takes things away, when he disciplines us, and even when he sends us sorrow and sadness and trials. When he does these things, he's doing what he doesn't want to do. He's doing what pains him because it brings us pain. And yet he's still doing it out of love for our ultimate good. This is the point. Uh, Both works, his proper and his alien work, are done out of love. But his proper work is what he wants to do. And his uh, alien work is what he doesn't want to do. Okay, so we didn't make this term up, the alien or strange work of God. God revealed it to us in this way. And so this is why we say it. We wouldn't dare to call anything that God does strange, but he revealed to us that it is strange. Isaiah chapter 28 says uh, it's about God's judgment upon uh, and his woe upon Ephraim and Jerusalem. 
right? Uh, so listen to Isaiah 28. It says, for the Lord will rise up. And this is referring to God rising up for battle. It says, the Lord will rise up. He will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work. Alien is his work. Therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. So do you see that uh, God is about to rain down destruction on Jerusalem and he refers to this work of his as a foreign or strange work that he is doing. And why is it strange? Because in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, God says this. He says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. This is why it's strange. Because God is doing what he does not have pleasure doing. Okay, I'm going to solidify this down in your mind with a distinction and a comparison. Uh, Parents know this distinction well between the proper and the strange work better than most people. If you're a father or mother, all you ever want in life is for your dear children to know that you love them. You want them to be happy. You want them to not worry about a thing. You want to go on trips. You want to have fun. You want to joke around with your kids and enjoy the time together. You want to play with them. When you shower them with gifts, that's when you're being most yourself. You love this, them in that moment. And this is you in your most natural state. That's what you always want to do and what you want to be remembered by because that's how you want to show it to your child. However, It just so happens that in this brief life of sadness, there comes a time when a parent has to do the thing he doesn't want to do, that he doesn't want to do when it comes to his child. There comes a time when you have to take the phone away, or when you have to spank them for their behavior, or when you have to ground them, or take things away, or punish them, or have them do things. And this is uncomfortable. It is strange to the parent. And this is why discipline is a very hard thing. Uh, Parents have a difficult time disciplining children precisely because of this. They don't want to do it. It hurts them. And the reason is because we'd much rather be hugging and kissing and playing with our child. Even though it's completely uncomfortable, we do it because we love them. Now, the same goes for pastors and members. Another analogy. The chief thing your pastor wants to do The chief thing that I want to do as your pastor is to encourage you and to talk with you and to support you and to laugh with you and to teach you scripture and to baptize you and to forgive you in the stead of Christ and tell you how much the Lord absolutely adores you by pouring out every ounce of life in his body and give each and every one of you the Lord's Supper. This is the chief and proper work of the pastor. This is what he wants to do. However, There comes a time when a pastor must do something that is strange and foreign to this proper work. There comes a time when I have to do not what I want to do, but what the Lord has told me to do for your good. And so in this brief life of sadness, when you become impenitent, when you fall into a harmful pattern of sin, denying your sin, excusing it, then I have to do what I admittedly hate doing, which is I have to rebuke you and admonish you 
and withhold baptism from you and withhold forgiveness from you and withhold even the Lord's Supper from you. And this is uncomfortable and it hurts. And I have to do the very thing I don't want to do, but I do it out of love for God and for you. So, a pastor has no pleasure in disciplining his members. A parent has no pleasure in punishing his children. And God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But love disciplines. Don't think that just because a pastor or your father or your mother disciplines you, that means they no longer love you. Far from it. It's precisely because they love you that they are doing this strange and foreign work. The same goes for God. When God disciplines us, he does it because he loves us. Nevertheless, even when God does this, he doesn't, it's not showing himself in the clearest way because God does not want to be defined by his anger and his wrath. Uh, Remember what he teaches us, what he teaches us to say of him. He says, uh, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. And Psalm 30 says his anger is but for a moment. So his anger is for a time, but he wants to be known always and forever by his enduring steadfast love for us. So his anger is to drive us to then that steadfast love. Okay. So I've spent about half the sermon uh, teaching you about the proper and alien work of God. So I'm going to get right into the text. The gospel lesson for today is not about the proper work of God, not about what he wants to do. Instead, it is about the alien and strange work of God. Namely, it is about his judging and punishing and raining down wrath on Jerusalem. It's about the thing he doesn't want to do, but will. So... The text tells us about two strange works of God, and this is the first one. Uh, It's right there in verse 43. It says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Uh, Like I said, I've preached this at length before, but to put it briefly, Jesus is describing with uncanny accuracy what exactly is going to happen to Jerusalem down to the the letter of what happened. This is uh, considered one of the greatest military uh, tactics used to defeat another nation. Uh, The Romans could not infiltrate or get into Jerusalem. It was uh, set up very well. However, they kept the people of Jerusalem kept getting their goods and they were surviving and living normally. Well, what did Rome do? They built a wall, a bigger wall around Jerusalem so that nobody can bring them food. And they starved the people out. And the people turned to each other and actually consumed one another. This is one of the most uh, gruesome and gut-wrenching moments in history. One of the most awful in the world. And Jesus predicted this exactly 37 years before it happened. Exactly as it would happen some 37 years before he predicted it. Then in the year 70 AD, it happened. Jerusalem was destroyed. Not one stone was left upon the other. 
This is a historical event. You can read about it in secular history. You can just Google it and find it. You can see pictures of this destruction. It is a fact. Now, uh, this, is, it, this is astounding to think about. The Gospel of Luke, where we get the Gospel lesson for today, was written in 55 to 60 AD. That's around a decade before it happened before Jerusalem was destroyed. So for 10, about 10 years, they were already knowing this from the Gospel of Luke. Even more, the Gospel of Matthew has the same exact prophecy, which was written in 50 AD. That's 20 years before it happened. So 20 years before this happened, it was written down to AT what was going to happen, and they saw it fulfilled. So the Christians in that time were already reading these words in their churches, meditating on them, hearing sermons about these texts, about words, about something that was going to happen. They didn't know when, before it happened. And in fact, we do know that Christians believed these words because there were Christians who fled, who ran away from Jerusalem right before that happened. They heard the text. They heard the words of Jesus. They said, this is a warning and we're leaving. And they survived. And this is why the church chooses to read this text every year at this time of the year. It is monumental. I mean, this is a huge, huge Sunday. So all of that is fascinating, and we can revel in that another time. The main point for today is this, that God did this to Jerusalem. Yes, it was Rome that pillaged and destroyed Jerusalem, but Rome was just the hammer. God was holding that hammer. God destroyed Jerusalem. And how can we say this? Because Jesus said so. Verse 44 says, all of this happened because you did not know the time of your visitation. What does it mean? It means that Jerusalem ignored when Jesus, God visited Jerusalem in the flesh of Christ. Jesus was there physically visiting them, speaking to them, performing miracles, and they rejected him and they tried to put him to death. And they did. They despised the God who made them. They didn't recognize when God was there in his grace. And then he visited them in his wrath. That is his alien work. He destroyed them. Now, <clears throat> the real thing. As bad as this was, it was one of the worst in human history. There's something even more terrifying in the text. And we see it in verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This is what I'm really trying to get at. This is worse than Jerusalem's destruction. The things that make for their peace is obviously the Lord Jesus. This is his absolution, his removal of their guilt, his love and his favor, which they receive through faith. But Jesus says, now they are blind to his mercy. They're blind to all of these things. They cannot see them. And this is what is sobering. He says, now they're hidden from your eyes. This is in, uh, grammatically speaking, the passive tense. It means that this is not something Jerusalem is doing. Rather, it is something that is being done to Jerusalem. It is something not that they do, but something that is being done from the outside. The things that make for their peace are now hidden from that. It's not that Jerusalem's closing their eyes. They are hidden. They are blinded from it. Well, who is doing it? God. 
God shut their eyes. This is what Isaiah 44, 18 says. They know not, nor do they discern, for God has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. This is a heavy text. Repentance is a gift. It is not something that you create or muster up in yourself. God gives you repentance. Acts chapter 5 says it. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance and faith to Israel for the forgiveness of sins. And this is a gift God gave you in your baptism. Now, here's the warning. If you despise that gift of repentance, if you despise the faith, if you trample on the word of God time and time again, then God can take away that repentance, that gift from you. You were born blind to his mercy and he gave you the ability to see his grace and his love for you. But if you despise it, he can take that gift away and leave you just as you were when he found you. He's not forcing you to no longer repent. He's not making you stubborn. He's simply giving you up. Uh, So we oftentimes think of the wrath of God as fire and brimstone from heaven. Fair enough, it is. However, Romans, 1, uh, Romans chapter 1 tells us the wrath of God is far worse. It is far more terrifying. It simply says God gave them up. That is the wrath of God. That is frightening. He gives you up. He stops trying. He's doing the one thing he doesn't want to do. That is, let you go. Now, I don't know for sure... But I suspect that some of you listening right now are dangerously close to this. I don't know if it's anger or slander or covetousness or lust or neglecting to pray or being harsh with your spouse or just overall indifference. If that is you, if you are clinging to your sin tightly and flirting with impenitence, If you're just giving the appearance of a Christian while inwardly you are not, repent. For the love of God, repent. Don't hold on to your sin or your love of sin any longer. Repent while you still have the chance. Don't be like Esau. Consider consider this haunting verse from Hebrews chapter 12 about Esau. It says, Uh, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Don't think this can't happen to you. If this can happen to the entire nation of Israel whom God loved so dearly, then don't think it can't happen to you. All right, I'm not trying to frighten you uh, or lead you into despair. Far from it. I'm telling you the truth of what can happen. This is truth. This is what happens. And I'm warning you to not lose hope to not give up and to not give yourself into sin entirely. I'm warning you to flee a fate that is worse than Jerusalem faced. So I want to encourage you right now saying that wherever you are in life, uh, whatever you're doing, if you're hearing this sermon, 
No matter how much sin you are in, how deep you are in that sin, how much guilt is weighing you down, how much trouble is in your soul, it is still not too late for you. Even if you're chancing it right now and you've gone further than you should have, it is still not too late. You can still get out. Don't close your eyes. You still have time. The Lord is waiting for you. He's visiting you right now with grace and mercy again. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Repent now, today, because you may not get tomorrow. Dear saints, no matter what sin you're in right now, God has opened your eyes this moment to see his gracious visitation upon you and to know the thing that makes for your peace. He's opened your eyes again and again, and the Lord comes to you right now. And he comes to you with gracious and a loving visitation. He is coming again in his body and his blood, the same body and blood that he gave for you and he spilled on the cross. He comes to you with the peace of sin forgiven, accomplished with, with, with your salvation, accomplished by his death. He comes to you right now, this very moment, not to do what he doesn't want to do, but in the Lord's Supper to give you to what he's longed to do, what he's yearned to do, what he's dreamed of doing before all worlds. He's come to declare to you a love that is undying, a forgiveness that will not fade or falter, and to prepare a place for you in his kingdom recognize this and know your time of visitation. It is today. It is right now. He comes to do a proper work. Amend your life. Cut these sins out of your life and cling to the work that he has given you. The work of his forgiveness of sins that wipes your conscience clean. Dear saints, there is not one thing in this world that you could do that Jesus has not already forgiven. So don't close your eyes to it and don't close your ears and don't harden your heart. Remember that God brought you here by his grace alone. He has kept your eyes and ears and heart open for one more sermon. And he has come to give you repentance and faith. And your Lord delights. He is happy in his chief and proper work for you in keeping you, in blessing you, in forgiving you, in loving you, and giving you himself, his very body and blood for your salvation. The only thing that makes for peace. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.